Right. So we're talking about necessary endings and new beginnings today and, and just in a very brief overview of the, of the Gospel of John. And we are doing a, a series as the tail end of it. What's amazing about Scripture, if, if at the end of this you can fall in love with the book of John, which was written by the beloved disciple. John felt himself to be Jesus' best friend. At the Last Supper, he was the one who had his head on Jesus' chest. I mean, he was leaning into him. And uh, he called himself the beloved disciple. And he was, the, he was the, the love apostle. You read in his letters, he speaks of extravagant language of, uh, of the, the love of God. Um, and he, he knew that so deeply. Bear in mind, he was one of the sons of, of, sons of thunder. Remember his brother James? Remember they were called the sons of thunder. So you can imagine the trans, translation from the, the thunderous, make it happen. And especially with the mother who wanted to champion their right to be at the right and left hand of, of, of Jesus in the kingdom. And so they came from a very, uh, how can I say, proactive, almost aggressive parenting background um, and, and, uh, and discovered the power of God's love. It was such a powerful thing. That's the guy who wrote this, this amazing letter. And he also wrote Revelation. And in Revelation 21, um, he writes about uh, the, the power of, of this thing he's looking forward to. And uh, in Revelation 21, if, you, if you've got your Bibles open, just to, just to set the, the scene for this, Revelation 21, the first couple of verses, we just open it up for us. And he says, uh, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The old one had passed away, no longer any sea. Um, the heavenly city, I saw that New Jerusalem as a, as a bride coming down dressed for her husband. So John thinks constantly of love language, constantly coming down this, this, this um, heavenly Jerusalem for her husband. He thinks of marriage. And he talks about verse, verse 3, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They'll be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from, from, from their eyes. No more death, mourning, crying, pain. The old order has passed away. Necessary ending. New beginnings, he says in verse, verse uh, 5. I make all things new. And then he says, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. So it's a love for what is written as a record that God is in Christ bringing a necessary ending to what was and a new beginning to what can be. So if we can open that up this morning, I'd, I'd love for us to do that. And so let's flip right back to the beginning of John's Gospel and take you just with a comment on chapter by chapter. If you could just bear with me about this. In, in chapter 1 of, um, of John, and I was, I was intrigued uh, when I, I caught on the live stream the message uh, last week. Also, the opening reading was from John chapter 1. I don't know if any of you remembered that, but all about the incarnation. And chapter 1 is all about the Word becoming flesh and dwelling amongst us. Um, and do you realize that only the first 18 verses of, of John's go, uh, entire gospel uh, relate to uh, an explanation, and you might say the pre-life of Christ. But from verse 19 of chapter 1 right through to the end, it's about his life from the age of 30 onwards. So the first 30 years, you, you could be summed, is summed up in the, the statements of the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. The rest of the book is about Jesus between the age of 30 and 33. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. Um, and so chapter 1 is about God presencing himself with us. It's the end of abandonment. No longer, no longer will you be abandoned, isolated, alone. I will be with you. The word becomes flesh and dwells amongst us. It's a necessary ending to the old nature of the fear of abandonment and rejection. And that comes up again and again and again. Chapter 2 
uh, they, they're coming to this wedding at, at Cain of Galilee, and Jesus and his disciples were there. You remember the story? They ran out of wine. I don't know if that was because he and his disciples were there, but they ran out of wine. One way or another, they ran out of wine. And, uh, and then Mary turns to Jesus and tells him, Can't, can't you do something about this? And he says to her, very interestingly, he says to her, um, Woman, my time has not yet come. From the beginning of his public ministry, he's already acknowledging that he was here for a very particular purpose, and he's going to wait for it. But he's busy with the ending. It's a necessary ending, and uh, it was particularly about, you know, when you ran out of wine, I don't know if you've ever, how many of you have ever had a wedding? You know what I'm talking about? You've had a wedding? And did you ever wonder if there was going to be enough food, enough wine, whatever, huh? and the shame of running short? Huh? You'd much rather have leftover. Uh, and it's like he's saying it's a necessary ending to all the old things that, that we're afraid of and the shames of our lives. And he, and he puts a, a, an end to that. Um, chapter 3 gets into the discussion of the, the, one of the leaders of the Sanhedrin, by Nicodemus. You remember him? He comes to Jesus by night and has this conversation with Jesus about uh, what does it mean to, to be born again. And Jesus engages him about that. And uh, it says, that except you be born again, you won't be able to inherit the kingdom of, of heaven. And he's explaining this to, to him. Uh, and it's like he's saying, Nicodemus, you guys have got so confused in all your traditions and the things you've added to the Scripture. But the Scriptures have spoken about me from the beginning. I mean, right, it's just like one illustration. When Abraham offers up his, his son, Isaac, on Mount Moriah, do you remember that story in, in Genesis 22? He offers him up, and that's a picture of the, it says Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the middle of the, of the, the patriarchal history of, of the people of God. The middle son is offered up as a picture, and there's so many types. According to Corinthians, all the Old Testament points to, to Christ. It all leans that way. And so Jesus is having this discussion with Nicodemus about being born again. I remember hearing of President Franklin who, uh, in the time of the 18th century, uh, put a question to George Whitfield, one of the great revival preachers, along with, with John Wesley. And uh, we had a privilege opportunity to go to, to the, uh, Wesley's, uh, what they call the new room in Bristol, where a lot of the revival was happening back in that day. We spent a lovely day there now on this trip um, in, in Bristol. And Franklin, President Franklin asked Whitfield, so why are, you, why are you always talking about being born again? And he's irritated by this message, you've got to be born again. And uh, to which, um, to which he, uh, Whitfield replied, because you must be born again. That's all I can say. You must be born again. It's as simple as that. So I've just got to keep saying it. So, uh, until the penny drops, that's what I'm going to say. You must be born again. Um, it's like, think of that man who, who got all of his newspaper editor and complained. He says, I'm, I'm really mad at you. Why did you put my name in the obituary column this, this, this week? And the editor said, oh, I'm sorry, man. I'm, I'm really sorry. I'll tell you what, next week I'll put it in the birth column. <laughs> As if it's going to fix anything. But we must be born again. And, and, and Gen, uh, John 3 is all about that. Go to John 4. He has that wedding. He has that, that encounter with the woman at Jacob's well. Remember John 4? And uh, it's a conversation between Jesus, a rabbi, with a woman uh, who comes at a time when uh, only people carrying shame can come. Uh, people that are rejected. The disciples have gone off to look for food. And Jesus is at this uh, at this well, having this conversation with her, and he unpacks 
the cry of her soul and talks to her about living water. What a, what a powerful thing. Um, she, her soul, it wasn't talking about physical thirst. She, you know, she, she had to be led beyond physical thirst to that which her soul was yearning for. And uh, it, it was like he was saying, this is the end of the old things that have governed your life and the life of so many, including because they criticized him for speaking with this woman. It was, he was challenging the, the intrusion of patriarchy. I'm so grateful that God has been, has been and is continuing to turn on the lights of the evils of patriarchy in our world today. We want to declare that the gospel, the gospel says that uh, there's neither male nor female in Christ. We're all one and equal. So the gospel sets us free from male-dominated leadership. It sets us free to operate according to our gifting, whatever that is, however that is packaged gender-wise. That is such a freeing thing. And we praise God that more and more people are rising up. And 50% of the leaders of this world have been tied up by the traditions of patriarchy. And God is saying it's time to set the prisoners free and release the gifts. So God is opening up a new day. And I know this is not a comfortable message for those who prefer to have the safety of, of a woman being barefoot pregnant in the kitchen, and that's where they must stay, versus uh, the, the, the yearning for be all that God's called you to be. Bring your gift, however that looks. Hey? And I know that uh, we, 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 we need to help each other uh, unpack that and, and, and apply it in, in ways that uh, will certainly bring about change. And so chapter 5 um, is, is all about uh, healings. There are a number of healings that take place in, in John chapter 5. And um, in verse 39 of John 5, he, Jesus is, summarizes his, his teaching on this uh, healing season and things that are happening. And he says in verse 39, You diligently search the Scriptures because you think that in them you might have life, but you won't come to me that you may truly live. So yeah, there were... Yeah, it's like... It's like they would be people who went to the restaurant and studied the menu, but never got the meal. I mean, how many, who would do that? When you go to a restaurant, you want the menu because you want to find out what's going on. I must just say, I need to confess, we went to a restaurant. <laughs> and uh, the taxi driver who took us to our drop-off point said, you must go to this restaurant in, in uh, what's that place, Eresiria, who uh, it's a big surfing spot in Portugal, and go to a restaurant called Tic Tac, and ask for grilled, grilled uh, octopus. Oh. I don't think I'd ever enjoy it. I mean, the suckers, the head, the works. But I mean, that thing was, I can't describe it. I think, this, I think heaven's going to be full of grilled octopuses. <laughs> Amazing. When I, when I go to a restaurant, I want to see the menu in order to embrace the octopus. Eh? I want to eat the thing. I don't want to just study it. Eh? My octopus teacher, what's that in that movie? Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And yet, so much of Christendom is, is just about studying the text, but never going to the meal, never embracing it. So can I just encourage those of you who are reaching in there to bring prophetic words and embrace the, the substance of, of, of what it means to be a spirit-led people. This is what we're dealing with. This is what the scriptures speak towards. They point us to the menu says there is a Holy Spirit who will take what is mine and show it to you. And you can share it with others and bring edification and encouragement. This is the substance of our, of our faith. We're actually living the substance of it. So, of course, the, 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 it's, it's all about 
a necessary ending for the things that, that have kept the, the, the Christian body trapped and releasing us now to a new humanity. It's a dynamic new thing. It, it's a new humanity where he says in John 5, 19, uh, the son can do nothing other than that which he sees the father doing. So we're going to learn as a new people, say, what's the father doing now? What's he doing here? What's he doing there? And so we bring prophetic words. We bring prophetic actions. We, we demonstrate and we, we, uh, we engage the things that we see the father doing. And then come chapter 6. Interesting chapter because that's the chapter where he has this big picnic. 5,000 men besides women and children. And um, a little boy with his sardines and a couple of, of, of buns. And, 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 he, and out of this comes this amazing provision that God brings for, uh, for everybody that's present on that Galilean hillside. Uh, what, a, what an amazing time. It's like God is saying, it's a necessary ending to, the, to, to our scarcities. I will provide. There will be enough. I will provide. And don't fear the future. And don't fear running out. In fact, at the end of the meal, they took up baskets full of leftovers. Just to, just to show you the lavishness of his love, as John described it later in 1 John 3 the, and John 4. The, the lavishness of his love, hey? He lavishes love upon us. So he wants to, he wants to set us free and help us declare an ending to anxiety. And I know there was quite a lot of ministry last Sunday evening, I think, with regard to anxiety, breaking the, the chains of anxiety that grip people um, and especially desertion, and, and some amongst us sitting here today have had difficult relational experiences where you've, you felt deserted by someone you thought would be loyally in love with you uh, until death you depart, but it didn't happen. And so you sit with the, the scars and the aura of desertion, but the gospel says it's a necessary ending to that because you are beloved, you are loved by God. And he will bring you into a new family, and he will bring you into a new future, and uh, you'll be able to have a new, new beginning. Uh, and in the, in the mix of all that, John 6, and you know the, the number, if you look at numerology, and each number means something, number, 6 is the, the number for the day on which God made man. And so 666, six, six, because it's threefold, three being the number for the triunity of God. Father, Son, and Spirit. So when we have 666, we have man trying to be God without God. And John 6, verse 66 says, now they've just had this massive picnic, but from that time on, you read John 6, 66, from that time on, um, they began to desert him and leave him and go their own way. Interesting how the desertion that is demonstrated there, but it didn't, it didn't deter Jesus from reaching forward and pressing in to all that the Father had called him to embrace um, going forward from that time on. Hey? And then John, John 7, he, uh, he teaches about festivals, and every festival speaks of another aspect of, of God and the transformation he wants to bring to, to cause a new humanity to emerge. Uh, and there's something deeply attractive about uh, this new humanity. Uh, and I, many of you are, are here today because you, you, you're hungering for that and, and many of you have become part of a new humanity uh, it's, uh, I don't know if Kevin, is, Kevin and Kirsten are still here in the building but they, they've just arrived back from where you guys somewhere, somewhere on the back there um, back from the UK to, to join us they actually left uh, they left their home and, and, and everything in the UK and have come to be amongst us here because they want to be part of a, what they see as God's call to be part of this particular expression of a, a new humanity. 
And, and so he teaches about, uh, let's eradicate the confusions and stories that, about these festivals. They're not just pictures in, in of themselves. They point towards new beginnings. And chapter 7 is all about that. Ch- shattering our preconceptions. Bring us into new teachability. Chapter 8. Again, he's shattering. He's shattering the, this idea that, that he has brought a, about a new judgment between people. No, no, no. John 8 is a woman caught in the act of adultery. Remember the story. He's brought to Jesus. Now, we think, we, we would like to think they were religious leaders bringing the woman to Jesus to get his best counsel as to how they can help the woman. But the Bible actually says in John 8, verse 5, 6, it says that he, they brought her to Jesus to trap him. They were putting Jesus in the dock. It wasn't actually about finding the best way forward to restore a woman that had fallen. Because by the way, in the act of adultery, normally implies at least two people, but only the one was brought. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating story where Jesus is saying, it's a necessary ending to this aura of religious condemnation. It's a new beginning of a day of grace. And a people who live by grace without judgment and condemnation. So neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more, he says. And then that lovely story in, in John 9 of that man blind. And the question, again, the religious people, don't you just love that, that God's unpacking our religious traditions? And they had this tradition that if there's, if there's blindness or something in your life, it's because uh, there's sin. Your sin has caused it. I mean, part of my own story, just for those who don't know, but I'll just give this little snippet of it. When I candidated for the Methodist ministry a couple hundred years ago, uh, feels like it, um, there was a man who stood up in the synod of a hundred men and, and objected to my candidature because I have a squint in my left eye. I was born with this thing. Uh, and... Uh, and although I'd wrestled with God for its healing, uh, it hadn't happened. And uh, this man objected. He said, uh, he quoted a scripture in Leviticus that anyone with a blemish is not fit for the priesthood. So fortunately, someone else stood up and said, sir, you must remember there's a New Testament now that we... <laughs> so fortunately, I went through and I candidated and spent eight years, nine years doing that. Um, but how we can sometimes be trapped, as, as they were in John 9, because of the dilemmas they had, of their confusions. And uh, I remember uh, in, our, in our previous place, before we came to P and served here, we had a, a church up in Fort Beaufort. And part of that, there was a passionate group of about 23 people that wanted much more than what was being offered in the structures of that. So we developed a, what's called Ecclesia, Ola in Ecclesia, a little church within a bigger church. A little church would be the prototype of what the rest could become. It was called Siloam Community. It was based on John 9, the pool of Siloam, where when the water is stirred and someone has helped enter, they're healed. And we were there called to be helpers of one another to get into the water of healing and become this new, new humanity. And Siloam Community shaped us and became the seeds of what eventually when we left and moved to PE. And some of those people moved down with us. They gave up their jobs and their homes and everything and sold up and moved and became part of the core that helped start uh, Fountain Vineyard back in... 1985, eh? Chapter 10, the good shepherd chapter. Eh? Remember John 10, he says, uh, I've come as a, as a shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And he, he speaks about uh, shepherding that's not done by hirelings, not just for what they can get out of it. And sometimes people will, will join a church or a ministry in order to find advancement for their ministry. And we always say, 
who, who we are and how we belong is going to be much more important than what we do. And it's based on this understanding that our being and our belonging are more important than our doing. Now, I want to say, I just add one more gratitude to what I shared earlier. So I'm very grateful for that, that Colleen and I can be part of this body and Gavin, Karen, Dave, Sarah, uh, we can be part of this together uh, regardless of how well we perform. It's who we are that counts. And in a very, very real sense, who you are actually carries the ministry because it's God working in you and through you that touches the lives of others. And so he, he, he challenges us uh, to know that when we are saved, he says, those whom the Father has given to me, no one will snatch out of my hand. And he speaks of a, a security that comes from effective shepherding by the Lord himself. And then that amazing chapter, chapter 11 of Lazarus, his great friend. Jesus had special friends and he had a special place, Bethany. He'd often go and hang out there with Mary and Martha and the brother Lazarus. And he died. And what I love about that chapter, this will help some of you struggle with, well, how many of you do maybe struggle with Bible memorization? Let me give you a verse. John eleven thirty five. If you can master that verse, you'll great, have great confidence for going forward. It's a lovely verse, got just two words, Jesus wept. Can you remember that? That'll just boost your confidence a little bit. Eh? Take that as a scripture for the week. Jesus wept. He's, a, he's in touch with his humanity. And this new, this new beginning is that you're going to be a person, as I'm seeking to become more and more in touch with how I actually feel. Uh, Colleen, I often have these conversations that when you say that, it makes me feel this. And she say, when you do that, it makes me feel this. We, we, we learn to work over the long years with how we feel because feelings are like the dashboard of our souls, of our relational soul. It helps us identify what's underneath it. And we're able to explore, why do I feel that? What's, be, what's beneath it? So it helps you to, to dig deeper and get, get the bottom of things. Um, Jesus wept. I just love that new humanity call to be a, a, a people that... Um, I'm not going to lean into the defeatism of, of Lazarus' death, but into the victory and, um, of emerging humanity, of good grief, and of friends. It's okay to have friends. It's okay to have friends. And then in, Matthew, in, in John 12, where we, we read earlier of Jesus, Jesus being anointed by, by Mary um, and uh, speaking to us of this is the end of pride and the beginning of the power of humility. Uh, and the triumphal entry, and it's, he comes on a donkey. But we know when he comes again, he's going to come a, as a champion on a white horse. He rode a donkey in the first run. Next time round, it's a, it's a, he's, a, he's a rider on a white horse, and he's coming to conquer, and he'll come in full victory. So it's, it's like a comparison for us at that point. Um, then, of course, going on from that, he washes feet. In the next chapter, John 13, he washes, he, he washes feet, and he speaks of the... Uh, a necessary ending to self-interest and to pride and to all those things. Um, and uh, it brings about a, a, a new humility that engages in a love that is a new commandment, he says. And he says that in John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment, not a new suggestion. He has a commandment. This is going to be mandatory. If you want to live this life, love as I have loved you. And then the next three chapters, 14 through 16, because he, he knows his time is coming to end now. He's already forecast that it's about to happen. And he, he goes into a, a lot of teaching about the way, the truth, and the life. And he says, if you want to live this life, look at me. I, I, I embody it. 
So when people ask me year after year, what's your vision for the year? It's just simple. It's Jesus. We want to know him and make him known. And, uh, and he concludes that by a prayer. John 17, he prays what we call the high priestly prayer. He prays that, that the whole chapter is his prayer. And he prays, Father, that they may be one, as you and I are one, that the world may know. Our unity is a paramount thing uh, that Jesus is asking from the Father, that we might be one. And he knows that the Father needs to help us get it, because we won't get it naturally. It's got to be something we embrace as a gift from God. It's a pivotal moment. And three times um, in the next chapter, he affirms that which will keep this prayer on, on track when they come to rest Jesus. The thing that keeps us in unity is recognizing who he is. Three times it's, he says, I, I am he, I am he, John chapter 18, I am he. And it's interesting, in the Greek, it's ego eimi. He says, I am the one. It's, it's equivalent to Yahweh, the, the one who, who is. And Jesus is claiming the full divinity of God because in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He's claiming it for himself. In, in John chapter 18, the arrest and the betrayal, the denial, and of which he'd already warned Judas and Peter that this is about to happen. Um, and, so, you know, he, he told John when John was leaning on his chest who it would be that would betray him. He said, the one who takes this bread that I give, and he, as he dips it in, you'll, you'll see, this is the one that will betray me. And then he looks at Judas. And, uh, and, and the Bible is very clear he, as he, he, he took a moment a moment of transition as Judas took that. It was like he was giving Judas one last chance to change his mind. But Judas didn't. Judas dipped it. And then the Bible says, and this is the only time that John's gospel uses the word Satan in particular. And he uses it later on in, in Revelation. But this is where he uses the word Satan, the accuser. Because at that point, uh, Satan entered into Judas. And he became demonized to do the act that he did. And then, of course, chapter 19 is all about the trial, the cross, the burial, and concluding with that a, a triumphal statement, it is finished. And he said, this is why I came. It's a new humanity that finishes the old and begins anew. It is finished. It's a new day. But because they think, wow, he's dead now. How can this be? A triumphal cry. Dead and buried. But three days later, huh, at the tomb, Hey, what an amazing thing. So let me, let me just focus this as we close it. There are four, four places, I'm going to add a fifth. There's four places that you must see mentioned specifically in Scripture, and they all start with G. The first is Gethsemane. In Gethsemane, John tells us in this garden, uh, he was wrestling with the Father. He, he dealt with our emotional, the emotional cost of our, of our old life. He wanted to bring an end to the, uh, the old ways. And, and our emotional uh, traumas are, are engaged with in Gethsemane. And, and he prays and wrestles until uh, great sweat drops of blood come out of him as he, as he prays with agony in Gethsemane. He's paid for our emotional turmoil. It's the end of our emotional turmoil. Then there's Gabbatha, the second G in uh, John 19, verse 13, where he he was brought on trial before Pilate. Remember the place where Pilate washed his hands and all that? And Gabbatha was the place of, of, of the legal dispute concerning Jesus and his liability. And uh, Pilate said, I find no fault in him. He actually took on 
the, the legal requirements uh, for judgment and was actually condemned as an innocent man. And in so doing, positioned himself to be paying for something that he didn't have to pay for for himself, so he was paying it for you and for me. It was a legal positioning that he obtained for us at that point in Gabbatha. The third place that uh, he went to was Golgotha, the place of the cross, sometimes called the place of the skull, a little hill, and um, where he was actually crucified, nailed to this, this wooden cross, where he took on the penalty of our sin. And this was the high moment. This is the moment that Jesus called his hour of glory. This is the hour. This is the time, he says. I came for this reason. And he, uh, in that moment, just before he said it is finished, he looked and he saw Mary and he saw John. And he linked up his friend with his mother. And he said, would you befriend each other? Would you support each other? In his dying moments, he's still looking to reconcile and, and give support and create community. Huh? Isn't, that, isn't that amazing? This new humanity, with the last breath you've got, you still want to bring people into unity and loving relationship. I think it's an outstanding insight of just the gospel just telling us what it's all about. Golgotha, our penalty is taken. And then there's Gehenna, which is uh, from which we get our English word hell where he descended according to 1 Peter 3 and uh, paid for our e eternal torment. He, he took away our, our fear of an eternal separation from God and brought us into unity because it had all been dealt with in Gehenna. He went to hell and back for us. That's what he did for us. And he did that to save us forever because if you put your faith in him, no matter how you feel, no matter what goes down, once you're saved, you're saved forever. There's a security about it that we need to lay a hold of. It sets us free. Some people think we should not preach that because we should keep people nervous that they could lose it. Well, God doesn't want us to be nervous about his love. His love from his side is never going to stop. And he says that we might not use all the grace that comes with that love. Some people are saved even as by fire. But he says the reality is the more we use it, the more benefit we'll have from it. But our eternal position is such that we are saved by the justification of what Christ has done. The sanctification of our lives being changed will really be up to us how we cooperate with the revelation of God's love in our lives as we deal with the necessary endings to the old parts of us. And then on that, the fifth thing I wanted to say to you as we close, it's also sorts of the G, it's a garden tomb. It's not a Greek word at all, the English word, garden tomb. And in the, just down from the hill of Golgotha, there was a tomb in which Jesus was laid, and that stone was rolled away. And because of his resurrection, because of his resurrection, we have a new beginning. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. But if Christ be raised, then we are, of all, the happiest people on earth. We are the people who live with more hope, uh, more confidence that he is, he is faithful. But can I, can I close it with this? There's an encounter with Jesus um, when he heals the brokenness of Peter. Remember threefold denial? Peter went out and wept bitterly, eh? and, and he realized he had really messed this thing up. And then Jesus meets him on the beach. And he says, come, let's have a bra. And, 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 and he says, well, have you got any fish? And they say, none. And you read in John 21. And, and he says, uh, well, bring what you got. Go and cast your net on the other side. And they come with this huge catch. 
and they come and he's got this, he's already got some fish on the fire and he's got a thing going on. Well, now he's actually South African, he bride, you know. <laughs> but fish bra. I don't know if you had octopus, but he had fish. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he, he has this bra. And it's just, it's just wonderful when you eat together. There's a, uh, conversations that can happen. And, and this conversation happened with Peter. And he healed Peter's failure. healed Peter's brokenness. Peter must have felt horrible. He wept bitterly for the way that he had screwed up. And he was supposed to be the, the, the lead dude in this whole Galilee band. And yet he'd gone and denied Jesus. Jesus had warned him he was going to do it. And Jesus just looked at him. I don't know whether it was a, Peter read it as a look, oh, I told you so. But he went and wept bitterly. But now he meets him on the beach and says three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He says, Lord, you know that I do. And Jesus restores him and brings him into wholeness. I just feel like God wants to do that amongst many of us. How many of you feel like you could have lived in more dynamically the new humanity than you have? Hey? Hey? Tace, why don't you come up on the band here and get your band up here with us? If you could. Why don't you stand with me, folks? Would you stand? Necessary endings. What would that look like for you? We have to say no to some things before we can say yes to what God wants for us. Say. Sometimes our hands are too full to be able to receive the new. We have to put down something to take on the new. I just feel like in particular today, <clears throat> God wants to invite us to call a necessary ending to our fears of scarcity, repeated failures, things that have covered the awe of our lives and kept us back. I praise God for the revelation of his love that helped me to, to bring about a necessary ending to my depressions and anxieties some years ago. He opened my eyes to see things that have been transformative for my life. You can't say yes to the, the new beginning unless you prepare to say, thank you, Lord, for this necessary ending. I submit it to you. And all those prophetic, all four of those prophetic words this, this morning were, were leaning towards that. Can we say, Lord, necessary ending. Father, I pray by your spirit, would you move in our hearts? May your word, as you speak it and seed it into us today, may it cause us to be a people who receive the full benefit, the full benefit of what you came and did in that amazing hour that you said you came for. This is the hour. This is the transaction. It's a time to finish the old and a time to say yes to the new. This person will lead us in a song or two just to, to worship. But while we worship, if there's some particular necessary ending that you want to affirm before God, you want to lay it down, invite you just to come forward. Would you do that? And I felt in particular we're living in economically challenging days and if you're in a place of financial difficulty and stress, God wants you to lay that down and give you back the freedom that comes from trusting His ability to provide. And He can take stones and turn them into bread. And He's not going to be one if you ask Him for a fish uh, He's going to give you a stone or a snake. He's going to give you what you, he knows you need as a loving father does. So while we worship, would you just come up and take some time to stand before God and lay out your necessary ending?
So Lord, I lay this down so that I can start a new beginning with you. Thank you, Lord. Thanks, Jesus. Lead us. Those people come. If you'd like to just come and stand with them and pray with your friends, would you do that? I belong at your feet, touching you. to set people free from financial worry particularly. He wants to release us to a new beginning of confidence in His ability to provide like a father providing for His sons and daughters. I want to break any uh, prison of scarcity and fear of inadequacy. I want to break it off today. God wants to release His people to us an expectation of, of sufficiency, of abundance, of His provision. So if you have any anxiety, we want to break it off to, together today. God's going to set you free. It's a new beginning where you're going to walk even in these troubled days of economic turmoil, post-COVID and in, in uh, South Africa and the world we live in today with all its confusions. God wants to say that you can walk as, uh, as one who's tied to the economy of heaven. So why don't we just continue? If, if you'd like to come and join those that are standing up front and praying already, just come and stand with them as well. But if you'd like us to pray with you, we're going to, we're going to break that, that, that hole that's going to keep you back. We're going to set you free to have a new beginning, financial, material, and in the circumstance of your life, God wants to open doors and release you to have a hope and a way forward in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Bring me back.
So some more people just come and join us and pray for those that have come forward. That'll be helpful if you guys come and join us. Pray for those up front here. Stand with them. Just invite the Holy Spirit to work. Give them the faith to release and to embrace. Release the old, welcome the new. It's as simple as that. And the Lord comes and He does that. He says, I make all things new. Make all things new. This is the day of the end of your anxiety. He says, he says prisoners free today. Thank you. In Jesus' name, we just declare freedom over God's people today. Financial freedom, material freedom, relational freedom. God is bringing freedom to His people today. The truth will set you free. Those in the sun sets free will be free indeed. So we bless what you're doing, Lord, right across this room today. In Jesus' name. We're going to continue praying for people here. And if you'd like prayer for any other thing that we haven't mentioned, but you'd like someone to pray with you, don't leave without coming forward and asking for prayer. But you're welcome to enjoy some fellowship while we continue praying for people here. you breathe. 